1: Welcome to another episode of Star Wars Action News. This is Marjorie.
2: I'm Arnie. We have a great show this week. We have James Lucino joining us once again to discuss Darth Plagueis. And there are a lot of spoilers ahead. We've been telling you for weeks to read this book. You can listen to Brock's review in the archives about what a great book this was. You can take my word for it. It was A phenomenal book. We're going to really get into it because there's a lot to get into. But before we get to that, first, the store report.
1: And, well, what'd you
2: find? I've hit a lot of Walmarts and Toys R Us's lately. I've kind of been skipping out on Targets. And Walmart has been getting in more of the deleted scene figures. I'm very happy that... I didn't find another Luke after buying one at the show last week for an inflated price.
1: I know, but you were upset because you didn't find one, and we found two of the other figures. And I, But that's good, because that means that you made the right decision. A week later, you still haven't found it in the store, so it's okay.
2: It is okay. I keep waiting for them to show up at other stores. Toys R Us took down our front display there, and now it's just, like, diapers or something. It's not even toys anymore. And they've moved everything back again. The sell-through is going well, though. The vintage figures specifically, they still have a handful of Wave 1s. Poor Ben Quadraneros appears to not be selling very well in my area. Called it. The Clone Wars figures are just kind of, they either overshipped or they're not selling as fast. But I do hear from Jedi Temple Archives that Wave 2 is showing up at Walmart's.
1: We hit quite a few Walmarts this weekend, and... A lot of the 3D figures still
2: there, and a lot of the Clone Wars, not too much in the way of vintage, though. And I'm also not seeing a lot in the way of the larger vehicles. The clearance section really has exploded. In my area as well, I'd seen this online last week, the brand new battle packs were marked down to $15 in the clearance aisle. Wow. Wow. And I also picked up all those little plushies. They were marked down to $7 that they had Mm -hmm. there. So check your clearance aisle if you've held off on any of this stuff. I don't understand why it's being moved to clearance so quickly, but it's a great time to troop build if you want that Republic Commando and the other clones that came in that set. $15 at my Walmart.
1: Or an army of plushies.
2: That does well.
1: Perhaps it's a toy aisle real estate thing, too, because there's a lot of summer movies coming out that are very toy-heavy. It could be something where with no movie coming out and just a Clone Wars TV show.
2: That's true, because it was tied into a movie this time. It was tied into Phantom Menace 3D. And it
1: was a pretty big section of every toy aisle, Walmart, Target, wherever. And now you've got The Avengers coming in May amazing spider-man is coming what else is there any other toy- batman batman oh little boys love batman
2: battleship
1: oh yeah that would be big in the toy all because it's a toy it's a game although i'd be very angry if no one says you sank my battleship. oh they're
2: saving it they're saving it for the climax do you think oh yeah liam neeson will say it do
1: you think that there's going to be when they attack they're gonna go B nine i guarantee it Okay, awesome. Then perhaps we'll see it. can we'll make a drinking game out of it.
2: But with not finding anything other than a few clearance items to buy on store shelves, we've ended up going online for our shopping.
1: Mm-hmm. I found some cool stuff. I poke around Etsy here and there and find some cool things. And this week, I found... Some Star Wars themed eyeshadow. It was by a shop called Victorian Disco Cosmetics and it's called Galaxy Down the Road or something like that, but they've got 17 colors all with a Star Wars theme. Now. And you
2: bought all 17. I
1: did. They have little packs where you can pick 20 and you save 15%. So I did the pick 20 and they're little small amounts. They're. Like, 0.3 ounces, and it is vegan, for those of you worried about it. Oh, you know that was keeping me up at night. I know it was. It's very disconcerting. Mm I'm a little confused by some of the color choices, though. Uh, It's very heavy on the blues and greens, which I'm okay with, but, like, the color that's Emperor is like royal blue like r2d2 blue and r2d2 is a lighter shade of blue i would have picked these colors both as an r2d2 none of these scream the emperor
2: no i would have definitely gone with the emperor's blue for r2d2 and for the emperor i would have done a really bright red an imperial red you know a royal guard red
1: yeah and some of them i'm not quite sure like one called the fet it's kind of a purpley black See, and I think the lighter
2: blue seems more fetish to me.
1: Ah, fetish.
2: I didn't mean that.
1: Ewok Pajama Party is kind of a nice little brown. Yeah, that fits. Yeah. Millennium Falcon, nice gunmetal silver. Good, good. Youngling, pale lavender. Eh, okay.
2: That's the Mace Windu to me. Okay. He's got the purple saber.
1: Droids, gold. C3PO,
2: although I would call that one Tatooine Sand.
1: Good. Leia's Bikini, kind of a brownish gold. Not bad. Okay. Skywalker, it's like a ice white.
2: I think it's based off his tatooine cl-
1: yes. tunic. Yes. You could actually mix droids, Leia's bikini, and Skywalker and make a very cool brownish gold kinda color on your eyes. Do the Jabba Jabba is like mustard yellow.
2: Yeah, I don't know that I like that one.
1: I, I don't know that I may have an occasion to wear this someday. I don't know.
2: It does look like mustard dust though. It, it looks like, like, like a powdered mustard.
1: Powdered mustard. Yeah. I wouldn't have picked a yellow for Jabba. It would have been more of a green. Well, he's kind of that
2: brownish yellow. I don't know that I would think Jabba with that color.
1: No. Do the, er, it's a trap is green.
2: That should be Greedo.
1: Yes, I agree. It is
2: Greedo green. It's a trap. Should definitely be Mon Cal red or brown.
1: Yeah, definitely a reddish brown. Yoda's yoga mat is a nice pale green. It's a little too pale, I think, but maybe... Eh. I'm not one for muted colors, so these would probably be my least used or only accent colors. The Force, use it, is kind of a minty green.
2: They were just running out of names.
1: Yes. Death Star is a good black.
2: That is nice. That actually looks Death Star TIE Fightery color to me.
1: Lightsaber is kind of a dark, dusty blue should have been a bright green or red or something.
2: I would have called that one Power Droid. Good name. They need to consult me.
1: <laughs> Lightspeed, I think, is one of the best colors. I say the best two for last, actually. It's a very sparkly charcoal. Ooh. It's very pretty, isn't it?
2: That is nice. That would look good when you go out clubbing.
1: Clubbing. And the one I think fits the best, Wookiee Noises, is a nice dark brown.
2: Wookiee Noises or noses?
1: Noises. So, like, Wookiee Sound? Wookiee Noses would have been really cute.
2: Yeah, it looks like Wookiee Nose color, not Wookiee Noise color. I don't know what color noise is.
1: The Lightspeed actually looks really good. It's definitely a clubbin color.
2: I told you, it's glittery. It's
1: very glitty. It's It's got multicolor glitter in it. Nice coverage. It is loose powder eyeshadow. I
2: don't know what that means.
1: Okay, usually eyeshadow comes like in a pressed cake, like foundation. No, you don't. I see. I've lost you. Okay. (laughs) Usually it comes where it's one solid piece. Okay. And you run your brush through it. Like a stick. No, it comes in a little package and you brush okay, your okay yeah over yeah and, like know, in a compact yes okay. yes yes this is loose powder so it's not packed down or anything if you drop this you would have eyeshadow all over if you didn't have the lid on
2: yes yes you it's, would. it's
1: loose powder for the girls it's like bare essentials you know they have the loose powder which i think they've actually gotten away from because it is so messy their foundation great foundation Makes a mess all over your bathroom, or your purse, depending on where it is. Some of the colors are a little pale. I tried some of the Youngling, and its it looks like a dark purple, but when I put it on, you actually can't even see it.
2: No, it just mutes with your skin tone.
1: Yeah, and I tried the... Droids one also, it kind of muted as well. Not a big deal, because I wasn't probably going to use too much of those anyway. Let me try one of the blues.
2: I think you should definitely keep the light speed for if they do the hoff Ice Bar or someplace where we can go drinking at Celebration 6 again.
1: Oh, no, I don't know. Drinking in the middle of the day at a convention was really rough.
2: They need to institute that at Comic-Con.
1: If there was a bar at Comic-Con, I would be in so much trouble. Comic-Con's my one time it a Let Loose. The R2 is actually kind of pretty.
2: Yeah, it looks very good. It's, again, glittery.
1: Oh, it's because I have glitter on the brush Oh, still. okay. But, yeah, it's not too bad.
2: No, it's not bad at all. It's a little bit geisha, though.
1: <laughs> well, that's because I just put a big swatch of it on my hand. <laughs> pretty cool buy. I got all of these, actually, for what I usually pay for just, like, a couple eyeshadows from Too Faced or Benefit. I- again,
2: I don't know what this
1: means brands of makeup honey (laughs) and i may not use all the colors but it's kind of cool i know it just has a star Star wars name on it but so what it's fun i bought it it's like 30 some dollars for 20 i picked three other colors because i only had 17 in the star wars i just got some other colors i liked And then she also sent some samples of some other colors she had, too, just as little freebies. So it's a great purchase. Check out her shop. She's got other themed stuff as well. There's some other sci-fi stuff. There's some Doctor Who colors in there as well, which some of you may like. But, you know, it's a fun little purchase.
2: So for our male listeners who have girlfriends and wives not into Star Wars, do you recommend this as a gift?
1: It depends. If they have a severe aversion to Star Wars where it is called the other woman or she calls it that movie or constantly taunts you about your interests. then no but if you if she goes to conventions or she'll go on toy runs with you or something like that why not show it to her and say hey honey would you like some of these look they have a star wars name to them girls like stuff like this i mean i want to buy your girl makeup because that's kind of weird that's <laughs> like saying oh you're not beautiful here let me help you but if you noted want, yeah But if you wanted to, you know, just show it to her and say, hey, look, this cool podcast I listened to found these eyeshadows. Would you like any of them? Do it. That would probably be a good thing.
2: Well, we will have a link to this Etsy store from our homepage. Now, over at Brian's Toys, you can pre-order the Clone Wars Wave 2 or the Clone Wars Wave 3 and... Pre-ordering by Wave in these cases, no pun intended, seems to be the better choice because Wave 2 only has four figures, so if you buy a full case of figures, you're ending up with a lot of figures you don't need, and Wave 3 only has three figures to it. Wave 2 is Republic Commando Boss, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Captain Rex, and Isla Sakura. And Wave 3 is Ahsoka in Scuba Gear, a Super Battle Droid, and Clone Commander Wolf. Also, if you haven't been able to find the Walmart exclusives, they have the Royal Starship Droids Battle Pack, as well as many of the 3D Discover the Force figures in stock right now. And remember when checking out at Brian's Toys, be sure to mention that you heard about them on Star Wars Action News.
1: There was a really cool product announced this week, too, and I'm not normally into Legos because very horrible memories of stepping on them with bare feet as a child as my brother was really into Legos.
2: And I like Legos. I'm into them. I just, again, I don't have a lot of time for building them right now. I have probably, what would you say, about 50 sets unopened in the basement?
1: Yeah, and here's the other problem. I'll I'll be honest. If something's going to take me too long to do it, I'm not going to do it. I, I like quick gratification. If it's going to take me six months to build something, I'm instantly out. I'm not going to be doing it. Not that I'm lazy. I'll do plenty of things. I just don't like to take a long time to do it. I get bored. My fear
2: is right now, especially not set up, I would need a work area that nobody would go to so that I wouldn't lose any of the Lego pieces, especially for something like what you're about to discuss that has over 2,100 pieces.
1: Yeah. Lego announced today a... Oh my god, a super cool R2-D2 that has features that just make your head explode. I mean, his head rotates. He's, what is he, about 24 inches tall?
2: 18 or so. 18
1: or so. Something like that. Oh my god, he's super cool.
2: He has the data jack that comes out. He has the buzzsaw, as seen in Return of the Jedi, to cut through nets and plummet down to the ground. Again, over 2,100 pieces. This is part of their Ultimate Collector series, which has had a lot of great sets in the past. I'm impressed by the price of this, as the Ultimate Collector series has often had very nice sets with prices that just scare me away. But this is only going to be 180 in the U.S.,
1: That's not bad at all. The amount of Legos in it just is mind-boggling to me because I've never been good at Legos even following the instructions, and it always ends up looking like modern art. Maybe it is because I lose my patience.
2: I love that they have the retractable third leg, and it actually has a locking mechanism to lock the third leg inside of him, and then you flip the switch and the third leg pops out. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of masterful engineering. This was kind of leaked out on YouTube, and then the video was pulled and then reposted. So we'll have a link to the video.
1: The video is cute at the end. I liked it. It was The guys are kind of fun that are doing it. It's
2: got the two engineers who designed this R2, discussing it and showing off all the features. But this may be my first Ultimate Collector series R2. Now, I wonder if this may be for sale from Sideshow, because Sideshow just announced that they are partnering with LEGO for some exclusive collectibles. Now, this could go any of a million directions. Mm -hmm. They could be distributing LEGO, like they distribute Hot Toys and Medicom, or they could be doing LEGO figure statues. We could see premium format LEGO Vader or something like that. I mean, really, they have not announced any details. I could see it going a bunch of different ways. But what makes most sense to me is Sideshow being another distributor for these Lego products.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I was kind of wondering, since they both happened in the same week, if that's what was going on.
2: So next up, James Lucino, author of a lot of Star Wars books. He just had two short stories come out about Darth Maul, one in the reissued Phantom Menace paperback and one in the reissued Darth Maul Shadowhunter paperback. And, of course, Darth Plagueis. I honestly cannot think of any Star Wars book that has taken this long to get going and that I have anticipated for so long. He talked to us a little bit about it when he was here discussing Millennium Falcon about five years ago now. And there is again a spoilers ahead. So if you haven't read the book and you don't want to be spoiled, here is my interview with James Luceno. And we're here with James Luceno, Star Wars author most recently of Darth Plagueis. Hello, sir. How are you?
3: Good to talk to you again, Arnie.
2: I want to welcome you back to the show. When we last had you here during the release of Millennium Falcon, we talked about how this book had been planned and, then it was pulled from Del Rey's schedule. Can you tell us a bit about the behind-the-scenes back-and-forth that preceded this book's release?
3: The story, of course, was that Lucasfilm decided that it was not a good time to do a plagius novel back in 2007. And that's partly true. But really, the problem had to do with how the book was structured and Lucasfilm's desire at that point to want to include more about Palpatine than I had included. So, um, it was pretty much shelved, but I refused to let the book go and I appealed to Lucasfilm to consider revisiting the idea, and I worked closely with Howard Rothman, who uh, was president of Lucas Licensing at the time, to create a new outline that would include more about Palpatine, and once Howard and I reached an agreement, then the book was back on, much to my pleasure.
2: Given that you were so personally driven for this story, pushing for it, it seems like it's more than a normal writing job would be. What is it about this story that makes it such a personal Goal for you.
3: Well, I think I had thought so hard about the character of Plagius that I wasn't really willing to let him go so easily. Uh, also, I mean, I, I felt it was a real honor to be able to work with a character that was so important to the film franchise. And I thought, you know, I figured if there was any way that I could talk them into letting me go forward, even if I had to make some compromises along the way, that I'd be willing to do that.
2: And given that this is such an important character to the Star Wars saga, was writing this book different, the process, than the other expanded universe novels you had written? Any more scrutiny over the material?
3: Yes. A lot of scrutiny. Howard and I probably talked for close to a year going back and forth about different concepts that he felt needed to be included, different things that I wanted to do. I had to do a lot of research because the book covers so much territory. And, you know, whenever you have five years to work on a novel, it's a very different writing experience than the usual franchise work where you may have six months or, you know, ideally a year to do a novel. So this was something very, very different for me.
2: And I know you worked with Howard Rothman a lot. I also read that at one point, George Lucas got directly involved.
3: Well, he was involved back when the project was initially offered to me. He was involved in the decision to have Plagius be a moon. He was involved in the decision that Plagius at some point during his life should suffer some kind of accident that would force him to wear a transpirator mask. And in my ongoing discussions with Howard, I'm certain, that Howard was meeting with George to fine-tune some of the things that he and I were talking about. So there was involvement. My role really was to create the story and run my ideas past Howard, and if anything struck him as maybe outside Lucas's thinking, then he'd get back to me and say, we need to tweak this a little bit, or we need to rethink this part. So there was involvement all the way up the chain of command, as it were.
2: And that is fairly unusual for an EU novel, right?
3: Yeah, it is. I mean, well, of course, George works very closely with the authors who have done the novelization, and I have had other dealings with George on some of the books that are considered bridge novels, like Labyrinth of Evil and even Cloak of Deception. Not that he gets deeply involved, but he is available to answer certain questions about characters or plot points. But I think in the main, I mean, like for the stories that are not directly tied to the films, it is unusual for George. George to really give a lot of input.
2: You mentioned that he had decided that Darth Plagueis would be a mun did you get any idea as to why he chose that species? Because it seems in, unusual and a little counterintuitive to, for to have the Sam Hill type of banker as the Dark Lord.
3: Yeah. I don't know what was behind his thinking. Basically, I when I was thinking about Plagius, I wrote to him and asked whether there was any reason why Plagius couldn't be an alien as opposed to human. And he sent back some production sketches of Muns and said, just without explanation, that Plagius As a Mun. I never pursued his reasoning, but I think it may be because he often goes by the art, and I think he just liked the look of these Mun characters that had been designed by some members of the art department, maybe for inclusion in one of the prequel films, but that never actually had made it in. So I think that that was part of it.
2: Well, actually, I think that the way you did it was great, making banking and the banking clan such an integral part, and really. Weaving in the moon background into the dark lega story. Like I say, a counterintuitive initial choice, but the way that you pulled it together, I thought was wonderful because this novel's so full of this kind of intrigue. Mm-hmm. And it's somewhat unusual for a Star Wars novel to be so much character exploration and so much kind of mystery and intrigue and not so much action scene after action scene. Was it challenging to maintain a Star Wars feel when working with this material?
3: Yeah. But I I knew that going in. I knew that I couldn't have the usual lightsaber duels or battles in deep space. And so I had to rely on political intrigue and machination of that sort. And maybe George, in his wisdom, chose the Mun and the whole banking clan tie because he sensed that there would be a larger story there. And indeed, that turned out to be the case, because without the banking clan to uh, finance all of these operations or having a wealthy protagonist like Plagius I don't think I would have had the same story.
2: And the story you tell, I was surprised at the amount of expanded universe strands that come into this novel. You tie into your own previous works some of the Matthew Stover stuff, the Revenge of the Sith novelization, you have mentions of the Knights of the Old Republic era, big now because of the video game, the Bane stories. There's so much in here and you said you did quite a bit of research and that you had many years to think about this, but can Can you describe some of the specific research you did to get all this pulled together?
3: Well, I've always read everything I can get my hands on related to Star Wars. I mean I read all the novels, I read the comics, I read the Wikipedia entries. I generally like to, you know, keep myself really up on what's going on in the franchise, in the universe. And so I I just made a lot of notes over the years and made a lot of (laughs) discoveries. I think I've said before that it was a little bit like creating a history for the prequel era that had never been told. But really, you know, the more I dug into what other writers had done and and the more I dug into entries on Wikipedia, it was sort of all there. I just had to find a way to work it into the existing timeline and try and make sense of it, try and bring in characters who I felt were important to that era. And it was just one of those things that came together.
2: When you say you read all of that, that's very surprising because so many of the authors I talk to are very, you know realistic with their time and they say that they don't have time to keep up because there is so much Star Wars fiction coming out. So when you say you read this, do you read it like work research or do you read it as a fan?
3: Both. I mean, it's been my sort of avocation for the past decade. But I also, uh, you know, Star Wars has always been really important to me, going, you know, way back to the late 70s when it all got rolling. And so I'd say it's a little bit of both. And I think one of the advantages, as it were, that I have is that uh, I'm not engaged in writing original trilogies or working in other franchises. I've really made a decision to kind of devote myself to to Star, Star Wars. So, you know, I I suppose I have more time than say Troy or, or Matt or some of the other guys that are still working in their own universes as well as Star Wars.
2: And we talked about how you bring the strands together and one of the things that I personally love about your work in general, and it's very evident here in Plagueis, is the way that you're able to bring in these things and kind of smooth out the bumps between different facets of the EU that sometimes don't always mesh well. I mean, you have references to stuff from the Clone Wars series, the movies, other EU books, and you do so in elegant, logical, and plot-driven ways. And we saw this with Millennium Falcon I've talked to, again, other authors about the importance or not of continuity versus verisimilitude. How do you feel about the need for things to have a continuity that is so exacting?
3: Well, for me as a fan and, you know, as a reader, as someone who's invested a lot of time in Star Wars, I think that continuity is extremely important because I think the more you can flesh out this universe in a very real way, the more rewarding the reading experience. I mean, I think I come to this from earlier work that I did with uh, Brian Daly in the Robotech universe, where we there too were compelled to keep the continuity as close as we could to what was being developed for the uh, animation. So I sort of carried that over into Star Wars. And from the very start, I felt that continuity had to be maintained. It's not always easy because there's a a lot of uh, contradictory events, and you do have to kind of smooth over wrinkles, as you say. But I think if the you know the fans are willing to kind of adjust their thinking a little bit, like in the case of Darth Maul in the Plagius book, now being given a whole second life in the Clone Wars animation, then you can really keep this sense of continuity going. And I, like I said, I think it really enhances the reading experience itself.
2: And I want to compliment you because the way you did it is such that for some of the stuff I hadn't read, but I'd heard of, it was put in in such a way that it was seamless with the original things you've added that I'd look up to see, oh, what did that come from? Oh, it's original.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good to know. I mean, I was, you know, worried while I was working on this book that, you know, I didn't want readers to have to work too hard to grab the references and the rest of it. So I tried not to overdo it. I did get hemmed in a little bit in the third part where the story moves into the events of The Phantom Menace. And it was difficult there not to tell all the stories I was referencing, all the things that that Maul did that would have been outside the purview of the novel itself. So that was a little tricky. But I'm going to try not to repeat that mistake if I get into this again.
2: Did you ever have a case where this worked against you, where you had something you wanted to do with this novel, but you weren't able to because of previously established EU?
3: Not really, because by the time I sat down with Howard to really talk about this, I had already written a very, very long outline, and I didn't want to push it in any direction that was going to create problems, either for Lucasfilm or for the writing itself. So um, by the time I actually sat down to really revise everything and, and to write, the book there was nothing i felt that and i was never a time when i told myself oh i wish i could take the story here i wish i could take the story there i was happy with the outline i was happy that howard was and the people at lucasfilm were happy with it so i just kind of stuck to what i had been working on for all that time
2: and one last thing on continuity in the beginning of the novel i noticed a passage where you wrote the same way the past was reconfigured by selective memory future events too were moving targets Was that a safety precaution in case the book conflicts with something coming in the future?
3: Well, I, you know, you do have to hedge your bets. I was always worried a little bit about where the story was going to go in the Clone Wars. And, you know, I'm not privy to everything that's in development at Lucasfilm. For example, the live-action uh, TV show. I know a little bit about it, but I don't know specifics. So, And and I've sort of I've been um, burned before, as it were. I mean, Lucas was the one who gave me the background for Grievous, that I worked into Labyrinth of Evil. But grievous's background was sort of overwritten for the Clone war so there's always a chance that that's going to happen and you know I mean when it happened with Karen Travis she just decided that she didn't want to work in the franchise anymore and I can I totally respect her decision to step out because she was not being told everything that was going down with characters that she had devoted so much time to so I think when you enter an area where you think there may be problems then you have to be a little bit Bit more vague than you might want to be
2: now i want to talk about the characters in this book and the core two being Plagueis and Palpatine. And given that the book was titled *Dark Plagueis, I was surprised that it was equally and in every way the origin story of the rise of Palpatine, which you explained kind of why that was. And I loved the scenes of them together. One of them where they go to the planet and slaughter the natives as the rite of passage. Was this a concept from a previously written source or was that an idea of your own design?
3: That was mine, but I I will say that I really have to credit Howard for always reminding me that this story should it be about a kind of partnership between these Sith Lords, which which was great advice because right away it gave me a different sensibility um, about the Sith. And it was great that I could actually use these two Sith characters and have them in their own conspiracy rather than be against each other at every moment, you know, plotting behind each other's backs. So that worked out pretty well, I thought.
2: Another great scene was the assassination or I guess maybe double assassination attempt scene, and it felt right out of a mobster movie and was fairly graphic by Star Wars standards, although I think it was appropriate given the subject matter of the novel. And I was wondering what inspirations you drew upon when writing that scene.
3: You know, at some point when Howard and I were talking, I think we both sort of stopped in mid-sentence and kind of looked at each other and both said at the same moment, the Godfather. And I, I think once we realized that plagius would have a little bit of that in him, that it would be a little bit of that kind of mobster tale. That also opened up a whole new line of approach that I could take. So with that sort of, those sort of assassinations, I think, you know, my mind probably was, you know, going back to the Corleones and things that had happened in the films. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's so many different sources that I probably drew on unconsciously that I couldn't even pin anything specific down.
2: Now, you talked about their partnership and I was just so engrossed in this book and the way you have Plagueis basically laying out the strategy that Palpatine ends up using to take over the Republic, causing the strife and dissent and bringing people to the lowest point to stand against a common enemy, in this case, the Jedi. But what I noticed Plagueis never really seems to give Palpatine is the next step on how to rule these people and bring them back from the brink, which Palpatine's really never able to do and ends up constantly fighting to maintain his empire. Mm -hmm. In your mind, did Plagueis have an idea that he was keeping from Palpatine, or did he not think that far out and just thought, once we are ruling, everything will be great?
3: No, I, I think that Plagueis did have it worked out, you know, in his mind, how how he was going to, you know, rescue things and, and be able to continue to rule. You know, he just missed all the, all the signs in his apprentice that this was not going to end well. And I, I so I, I do think that... Uh, Sidious killed Plagueis too soon. And um, perhaps he grapples with that um, in some sequel. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> now,
2: at the end of the novel, you have Palpatine telling Plagueis in his last throes that he, Palpatine, was the manipulator all along. And I, looking at back on it, I reach back to even when Palpatine killed his own family, and wondered if that might have been a manipulation into getting Plagius to take Palpatine on as an apprentice, or was the manipulation something that came later as Palpatine gained power and confidence?
3: well in my mind Palpatine has his own way of manipulating from the very start there are subtle things that that occur in the novel and and maybe I should have brought them more to the surface than I did but I tried to give just very faint instances where Palpatine was doing his own manipulation without really delving into his his motivations his thoughts in those scenes and that was that was also a decision that was um, that Howard and I arrived on that uh, arrived at that I would not show Palpatine's own plan at work, that it would be much more subtle. But I, I do think that there are signs in there that he was, he had his own agenda from the very start. He knew who he was dealing with when When he knew uh, Plagueis only as uh, Ego DeMoscue. And he knew where he was going and, and where he eventually wanted wanted to be. I think he just, um, you know, he, he's, he's a liar throughout the movies. He's a manipulator throughout the films. And there's no reason to think that as a young man, he was anything different than what he becomes when he's emperor.
2: I can go off on a tangent for a minute. You said he's a liar throughout the films. One thing I've always noticed about the Sith in the original trilogy is it seems like they're the ones who are always telling the truth. You know, Vader says, I'm your father. He wasn't lying. The emperor at the end reveals his whole plan. He's not lying. Whereas it's the Jedi who kind of lie to Luke, you know, your father was killed by darth vader and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. i never really saw palpatine lie until i think and this is up for debate revenge of the sith when he tells anakin i have the power that can save padme so when you say palpatine was always a liar i'm curious how you see that in the original trilogy
3: well i think maybe liar is not the right word i think that he is always boastful and grabbing more credit than he actually deserves. And I think that even at the the very end of the original trilogy, where he is, you know, attacking Luke with lightning, that even then his his, you know, boastful nature gets the best of him. So liar, probably not, but someone who maybe doesn't have a clear, clear sense of his own hubris.
2: Or as Obi-Wan would say, a politician.
3: <laughs> yeah, you're right, politician. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we do see a lot of that going on. Don't we?
2: Now, in the book, you know, speaking about Palpatine and his manipulations, there's a scene where his father mentions trying to swallow his son, and I took that kind of as a reference to Cronus swallowing his children from the Greek myth, but. I wasn't sure if I was using that allegory correctly, because in this context, Palpatine's father isn't a Force user, so he's not another god. And I was wondering what you were referencing with that.
3: Well, I tried to give that scene a bit of a mythical overlay. We don't really know that Palpatine's father didn't have the Force. To some degree, uh, he just may not have had it to the degree his son has it. I wasn't really alluding to that, but I think that your your read of that kind of um, those mythical references is is accurate.
2: In your Novel Cloak of Deception, a prequel era novel, you have Palpatine mentioning that he heard Varuna was in hiding. And here we find out that he's very clearly been killed. When you were writing Cloak of Deception, did you have an inkling in the back of your mind that that you were writing something you might be able to revisit later on and build upon?
3: No. That was just fortuitous. I mean, it seemed obvious that the Sith had a hand in Varuna's untimely demise, as it were. But at that, that time when I was writing Cloak, I don't think I even knew about Dark just back then. So I wasn't really thinking forward at that point.
2: And Cloak of Deception taking place, you know, just before The Phantom Menace. When I got your book, it never occurred to me that Plagueis would still be alive during events of The Phantom Menace. And, of course, that's the huge, biggest spoiler of this novel, is that that's the case. Had you always thought of Sidious and Phantom Menace as still being not yet a full master?
3: You know, I, I don't really know how to explain this, but when I first watched The Phantom Menace, I kept getting this sense of... A much bigger story uh, underneath what George was giving us. And I, almost as if I was sensing like a presence even more sinister than Sidious and Maul. So I always had that kind of in the back of my mind. So when I broached that with Lucasfilm, whether, you know, I could carry that forward and they said yes, I was, you know, I was thrilled because I had always, you know, I'd, I'd always been thinking in those terms.
2: And by doing that, of course, you kind of rewrite or change our perceptions of the role of Darth Maul, whereas we always thought, you know, always two there are. Well, it was Maul and Palpatine, and that's another great little twist you pull here. But in doing so, we also get, in addition to the backstory of Palpatine and Plagueis, a lot about the origins of Darth Maul and how he came to be Palpatine's tool. And in the book, during the introduction of Darth Maul, it talks about his brother, Savage, and the backstory that, as of this interview, is still being developed in the Clone Wars. We still, as of this interview, haven't seen him back. He's coming back just a couple days from now. Right. Did you work with the Clone Wars team at all in preparing this to ensure that none of the continuity trouble occurred as they continue their Maul storyline?
3: I did. I worked very closely with uh, Dave Filoni on on getting that right, and I hope he hasn't changed his mind on what he told me (laughs) back, back when. So I'm I'm as eager to see these episodes as as anybody. But, yeah, I did, Um, because Maul had to be introduced in this book. And, you know, I had sort of my, uh, I had a a sense of of where they were going in the Clone Wars, but I had a lot of email exchanges with Lee Lynchy and Dave about what they were planning and just, you know, this origin story for Maul and what we could do and where we could go with it. So, Hopefully that isn't going to be rewritten, I hope.
2: And now I can't let this interview go by without a discussion of midichlorians and a certain chosen one. Now, in the book, you kind of provide what, at least to me, is a new viewpoint, the one Darth Plagueis has, on what midichlorians do and how they interact with the Force. And I know that midichlorians are kind of a hot-button topic among Star Wars fans in general. I was wondering why you chose to frame the symbiotic organisms in that way.
3: Ah, You know, that's a tough one for me to answer because that's a topic that, that's an area that I knew was going to be trouble. And I just remember reading a lot of, believe it or not, about uh, particle physics and different particles that may or may not emanate from our actual future and particles that may or may not break the speed of light and all these different, different things. And I don't, out of all of that reading and just thinking came this notion of, uh, midichlorians as Something maybe slightly different than the organelles that were originally described in the in the movies. But uh, I, I hope that doesn't come off as, as a lot of sleight of hand because, you know, I know it's a, a really touchy area and uh, a lot of people have their own take on, on midichlorians and what they're capable of. And I just thought that having them be sort of these intercessors rather than the force carrying particles in their own right made more sense than the way I think a lot of us have been thinking. About the previously.
2: And I think one of the things that is drawing a lot of people to this book is to find out once and for all if what Palpatine said in that opera is true, or what he hinted at, is that Darth Plagueis created Anakin possibly as a tool of the Sith. And I've talked to a lot of other people who've read this, and... There seems to be some discussion about ambiguity regarding the creation of Anakin. And I know there's just a couple different ways to read this. When I was reading it, I took it as Anakin was created by the Force as a counterbalance to the midichlorian experiments Plagueis was conducting. But some of the people I've spoken to wonder if Anakin was maybe a successful experiment or a side effect byproduct of the Sith alchemy he was performing. I was wondering if you intentionally left this ambiguous or if you think the answer is there for those who know where to look.
3: (laughs) Another very tricky uh, area to go into because I will say that there is an answer. There is is an absolute answer. Unfortunately, this is one area where my hands were a little bit tied. I was not able to be really as explicit as I probably would have liked. Uh, I think your read on it is close to the way... I presented it um, <laughs> but I think there is room there. maybe Plagius wasn't even aware of just how successful he he was, and I think that palpatine's feeling is sort of best presented in that in that opera scene when he is talking about Plagis for the first time, and he gives. Anakin look at a certain point in that scene, just before he's talking about Plagius' ability to create life, that says perhaps more than even I said in the book. How's that for vagueness?
2: <laughs> it's an answer I'll go back and listen to again and be picking <laughs> apart as much as I am here now I know, I know. <laughs> Moving away from the core two, I also love some of the cameos and minor characters in your book that we've heard of before, especially the exploration of the seduction of Count Dooku and the scenes with Master sifo I was wondering if you felt like those were characters that could eventually sometime get as much of an exploration as you've given to Plagis here, because in many ways, they're as big a mystery.
3: Yeah, I think there's, well, I I think Dooku has really been explored now to about to the extent that he should be sifo he was very important, and I mean, this again goes back to a question that I had for Lucas that he answered, because I, you know, when I was writing Labyrinth of Evil, I wasn't sure about sifo whether he was real or whether he was a play on Sidious, as, as some people said, but um, George said at that point, and I, again, I hope he hasn't changed his mind, that, oh, no, indeed, sifo was a Jedi and was responsible for ordering the clones. So it was very important to include them. I mean, I suppose the story could be extended, and and there's more to say about them. But maybe a novella or a short story would, would suffice rather than a, a whole exploration of that that period that that follows directly on the Phantom Menace. Moving
2: to the end of the novel, in Revenge of the Sith, we learned that Plagueis was killed in his sleep, and here you have him transcend the need for sleep. And once I read that, I was wondering how you were going to get him to sleep before the book was done was that detail of him not needing sleep created to get readers like myself to stop anticipating his death throughout the novel
3: yes i think that i had to heed my own continuity on that one because i think when i went back and i read dark lord I had said something to that effect that Plagius had passed beyond the need for sleep. So, not wanting to contradict myself, I worked with that. But that was one thing that initially, when the, when this project was initially came up, and I asked, "Well, is there any way that the ending can be more exciting? That you know, he doesn't have to die in his sleep because that's pretty anticlimactic." That was one case where I was told, "No, that's exactly." What happens? You've you've got to come up with a way so that there isn't a lightsaber battle and Palpatine is able to get the drop on on Plagueis.
2: And I like the way you did it where he was asleep, but yet still the force in him fighting back somewhat. It was a a good splitting of the difference.
3: (laughs) Right. That was a scene that was rewritten several times, and I had some good input from Shelley uh, Shapiro on that one, and she helped make that better than it was originally.
2: Finally, when we talked about Millennium Falcon, we discussed how you put some humorous stuff in the prose for the alert readers to pick up on, or maybe for yourself. Here I found a few again, like calling Plagueis a mun of wealth and taste, right. and having a planet named Cursed.
3: Right,
2: a couple of the more subtle ones that I loved, having Darth Tenebris and Tenebris meaning dark, so he's basically darth dark right. <laughs> And on top of that, he's a Bith, so you have a Sith Bith.
3: A Sith Bith, yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, these are just little things that, um, you know, writers entertain themselves with in order to, to fight off the boredom.
2: Uh, was it tricky to never have the two words in the same sentence, Bith and Sith?
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I You know, I, I was laughing at my own prose half the time when I was uh, trying to trying to write around those kinds of things. And then, of course, all the plays on Moon, you know, which, um, you know, <laughs> there are endless, endless amounts of uh endless directions you can go with that one. <laughs> so some of those things just fell naturally into place.
2: And subtext mining, oh, a good one there. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yes. Now,
2: in addition to Darth Plagueis, you also have two other uh, stories coming out, Darth Maul-related, one in the new printing of Darth Maul's Shadow Hunter, and one in the new printing of The Phantom Menace.
3: If they ever appear.
2: They're out. I have them.
3: No, they, no you are. You, I'm glad you have them. I mean, it seemed like there was – I don't know. Those books were supposed to um, appear like – more than a month ago, I don't know, I don't know what happened there.
2: Well, honestly, it was tricky because they didn't change the ISBN numbers.
3: Yeah, that was that was a brilliant move.
2: <laughs> so yeah. ordering from Amazon was very hit or miss. But yeah. uh, the they finally have shown up in my okay. uh, Barnes and Noble. I, I did end up getting them from Delray when every other avenue failed initially <laughs> right after
3: right. release. Yeah, that's what people have to do they have to get them directly from Delray.
2: <laughs> I was wondering when those stories came about in the process of writing. Did you know they were going to be out so close to Plagueis when you were writing Plagueis, or were they after the fact?
3: Uh, they were after the fact. I had already turned in the manuscript when Delray asked if, if I would be uh, interested in doing those stories. And I mean, it, it just seemed natural because I felt they could have actually almost been excerpted from the Plagueis novel, but you know, I, d- I didn't want to steer the point of view uh, away from the main characters, so they would have been very out of place. But I mean, I had been sort of thinking about Maul while writing *Plagius* and thinking about different um, uh, experiences he might have had uh, in his in the gladiator camp or afterwards. So they were sort of floating around in my head. So when I got the opportunity to to write those stories, they were they were right there. And
2: there are quite a few ties between your short stories and writer Wyndham's story, *The Wrath of Darth Maul*. I was wondering if you had any communication with writer when you were writing Endgame and Restraint.
3: Yes, we worked very closely. As soon as he was commissioned to write that book, he got in touch with me and we worked. you know, while I was writing the stories, he was working on the novel. So we were constantly in touch about what he, each of us was doing. And he sent me what he was writing and I sent him what I was writing. And so we tried to keep that as um, continuous as possible.
2: Great. Well, thank you for coming on the show. A couple of just closing questions. Are you planning on going to Star Wars Celebration six this August.
3: Yes, I will be there.
2: Good. Any, uh, so you'll uh, probably have a signing at that time for people who like to get their books
3: signed. I don't, I don't know what the plan is. I mean, I know that several writers are going to be theirs. But I, I don't know what they have planned for us. I'm sure that that will, inc- whatever it is, <laughs> it will include signings. I've never been to any of the recent celebrations. Have you gone?
2: Yeah, I've been to all of them since two. I didn't go to the first one. And, uh, right.
3: So have there been signings in the in the recent ones that you attended? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that'll probably be the case again. I mean, I think that Tim Zahn is going to be there, and um, several several guys.
2: Several yeah, it's looking like it's going to have a great representation from EU authors. It's, a, it's nice. Yeah. You know, oftentimes you get the ones who just had books published you know in the three months before or after so it's
3: right yeah that'll be good i I haven't some of these people i haven't met and i'm looking forward to meeting them
2: and i know you probably can't give a definitive answer but are there talks about when you may again revisit the galaxy far far away
3: there are talks yes
2: and do you have any non-star wars books in the works
3: I'm taking a shot at e-publication. I I wrote a novel that's set during the time of the classic Maya. It's kind of an adventure novel. And it's available for Kindle and and the other devices um, through uh, Amazon.
2: Great. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming back on the show. And also, thank you for being the person who explained the trade embargo to me in a way that made sense 13 (laughs) years after the fact.
3: (laughs) Well, my pleasure to to be on the show and to explain to explain the trade embargo to you. <laughs> it's great talking to you, Arnie.
2: Thanks again to Jim for coming on the show, and we look forward to seeing him at Celebration Six.
1: Well, that's our show for this week. If you
2: enjoy the show. Please head to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. It's the best way you can help support Star Wars Action News is by telling others and telling others on iTunes with a five-star review. A written one is better than just clicking the stars. We really appreciate it.
1: Have a great week.
0: Thank you for listening to Star Wars Action News. You can find even more Star Wars coverage at our sister podcast, Republic Forces Radio Network, where we review each episode of the Clone Wars cartoon series. You can find that show at republicforces.com. If you're into Star Wars novels, check out the Star Wars Action News Book Club, where we read and review all the Star Wars novels. That podcast is at swactionnews.com. We want your feedback and suggestions for Star Wars Action News. You can email us at show at swactionnews.com or post your thoughts in the Star Wars Action News forums at swactionnews.com, the most friendly forums on the web. You can be on Star Wars Action News by calling our voicemail at 415-508-JEDI or sending an MP3 or iPhone voice memo to show at swactionnews.com. All materials submitted become the property of Star Wars Action News and are subject to use on our show. You can help support Star Wars Action News by using the affiliate links on our homepage when shopping online. We would also appreciate it if you spread the word about Star Wars Action News by posting about us on Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, or just tell a friend about the show. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can also cast a vote for us each month at Podcast Alley. Links to both can be found on our homepage at SWActionNews.com. For more Star Wars collecting, please visit YakFace.com and JediTempleArchives.com. And we thank those sites for their support of Star Wars Action News. Star Wars Action News is created, produced, and hosted by Marjorie and Arnie. The Star Wars Action News team is website designed by Jason, associate produced and announcements by Brock, reporters Jerry, Dan, Steve, and Justin, graphic design by Chris, and podcast enhancement by Barrett. Star Wars Action News is not affiliated with Lucasfilm Limited. The show is created by fans showing their love of Star Wars. Star Wars and all the Star Wars universe contains is trademarked and copyright Lucasfilm Limited. All rights reserved. Until next time, may the pegs be stocked and the Force be with you. Star Wars Action News. Now this is podcasting. Star Wars Action News is a Venganza Media Production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.
1: I haven't made the spoiler sound in a long time.
2: Yes, let's continue that.
1: Okay. Hey, some people look forward to it.